I came across a uh, new description of uh, church this week, which likened church to uh, going to a petrol station to refuel your car. That's to say that uh, uh, church is where we fill up spiritually so that we can keep on living for Jesus over the next few days, weeks, and so on. I think in one sense that's absolutely, uh, that's a good idea, isn't it? That's a good description. We all need to refuel so that we can keep living for Christ. But there's also a lot that's wrong with that uh, view of church because it's all about me and me-centred. It's very individualistic about me being refueled. And such an attitude forgets uh, Christ and what he has done for us And it forgets or neglects the body of Christ, the church, that we are part of his body. And as we look at at these verses this morning, we will see that such an attitude, being an individualistic person, is very dangerous indeed. Uh, In recent weeks, uh, we've seen how prevalent selfishness was in the church in Corinth, It began with spiritual pride and arrogance. Uh, The Corinthians thought that they'd arrived. And that manifested in all kinds of wrong behaviour. And we've been noting some of that in recent weeks. Uh, It meant that they pleased themselves. They acted in ways that uh, caused the body of Christ and the world to stumble. And not surprisingly, it brought rebuke from God via the Apostle Paul. Not because uh, he was a harsh disciplinarian, but because he didn't want the Christians in Corinth to miss out on the prize that is theirs and ours in heaven. Well, having concluded uh, his words about their behaviour in general life, Paul then moved on to talk to the Corinthians about their inappropriate attitudes and behaviour in the church. In this chapter last week, we saw how the Corinthians had minimised or done away with the God-given differences, the differences he intended between men and women and their roles in church. This week, we see Paul addressing a more alarming issue, an opposite tendency, if you like, that of their individualistic attitudes and behaviour creating divisions in the church, when in fact the church should be one. Just listen to how Paul begins those words that we looked at earlier. Verse 17. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. Those are some of the most damning words used about a church in the New Testament. Paul is saying that in Christ Church Corinth, there were aspects of church life that were so rotten that actually the church would have been better off not coming together at all. Well, like the Corinthians, we live in a very individualistic world, a world in which uh, I will do what I want, when I want, how I want, where I want, and with whom I choose. And it will be very easy for such behaviour to creep in or indeed to have crept into Christ church forward. So this indictment of Christ church in Corinth is at least a warning to us all here this morning. Because making division or seeking difference and seeing difference 
where God doesn't, brings his judgment upon us. So let's look at these verses and we're going to see three things. First, the problem exposed. Second, the solution explained. And then thirdly, the response required. If I'd been really Anglican, I'd of course realised that I should have put expected in there just to make sure that each of the three points sort of had the exposed, explained, expected. But anyway, the response required at the end. Well, first off then, the problem exposed, verses 17 through to 22. And particularly Paul is highlighting here division in the church and social division. Look around us today and you will see social division all over the place. It happens in where we live, in how we educate one another, our children and where we've been educated. It happens when we go to a football match and where we can and can't sit, depending on which team we support and how much money we have. Just this week, uh, Olympic tickets have been uh, coming out. And uh, where and what you could go to, depending on how much money you had, and also on a certain degree of luck. We accept it as part and parcel of everyday life. But Paul is clear that even to entertain ideas of division in church, well, we should be outraged at such a suggestion. Just turn back with me uh, one page to uh, chapter 10 and verse 16 and 17. Paul's already highlighted the unity that is expected in the church. He says, Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one loaf. That's what should be going on. But in Corinth, the church was divided just as the world was around it. Verse 18, back in uh, chapter 11 again. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. They were meeting together, but in fact, Ironically, they weren't really meeting at all. There were divisions or or schisms or schisms due to insensitivity, selfishness that all had their roots in individuality. Claiming their rights, all about me and I. But far worse about their meetings was the greater shock that uh, when they gathered together to share the Lord's Supper, Paul says, actually, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anyone else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. We can't know for certain exactly what was happening uh, or exactly how members of that church were being marginalised and despised. But we can suggest perhaps two ways in which this might well have been happening and it might have been a mixture of both. It may well have been that the Corinthian church was meeting uh, on the Sunday but at a time when the uh, working classes couldn't come and join them immediately, so that the middle and upper classes had already gorged themselves on the food that was uh, available to the church family when they met, and they drank, and they had enough time to drink so that they were drunk by the time others arrived. So it may well have been about the timing when they met, but it also may have been about what happened when they met, the order in in which people got their food, 
So it may well have been that the Corinthians adopted the social practice of the day, the day in which the, uh, the house owner sat in his dining room surrounded by his chums, people who were like him, wealthy and, and so on. And, um, well, they got all the food and drink first. So they got the choice food, the caviar and the champagne. And uh, they were able to drink and eat all they wanted. And after they'd had what they wanted, it then went outside into the atrium, into the place where all the freedmen and other people were. And uh, they had something. And then after that, if they were lucky, it got out to the slaves. You can see that uh, either possibility brought division. And Paul says this to them. He says, look, uh, verse 22, don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. It's worth saying, I think, that uh, the Corinthians may not have been deliberately trying to humiliate uh, fellow Christians, but their behaviour was selfish, individualistic and without thought. They were allowing the church to be shaped by the culture in which they lived in, not by Christ. So it's no surprise that uh, Paul uh, says in verse 19, I skipped over it earlier, I think it has more impact if we look at it now. What does Paul say, say to them? He says, no doubt there have to be differences. That word is in fact the word for heresies. No doubt there have to be heresies among you to show you which of you have God's approval. So differences over theology show those who are truly God's people and those who are not. Differences over theology and practice. So how we behave shows what we believe and shows whether we are truly in God's family or not. Well, I guess we may think that uh, we would never behave like the Corinthians. But I think far too often, without thinking, we can be equally guilty of discrimination and division. You see, we may know in our heads that we belong to one family, but we don't always live that out in truth. Just think about a newcomer. Uh, just look around the room now. Uh, I suspect there'll be people you don't recognise. Uh, they may be newcomers, they may just be people you've never come across before. But we're probably far more likely to go up and talk to those people if we kind of, there's something about them that draws us to them. And what we allow to draw us to other people is that they have something in common to us, something worldly. They appear to be from a similar background to us or something else like that. Or think about the people that you have around to your house. The regular members of Christchurch who you perhaps meet and talk to after a meeting. We're probably far more willing to do that with someone who shares that thing in common with us. Perhaps they're the same age as we are. Perhaps they do the same job or same type of job as we do. Perhaps they've been to the same type of school as we have. Perhaps they've got children or don't have children as we have or don't have. And their children are the same age as us. Perhaps they're married or single like we are. We make choices about who we want to share with based on all kinds of worldly values and decisions. 
Let me just make it slightly more personal. Who did you choose to come and sit next to this morning and why? Was it because it's the place you always sit in and that's your place? Was it because, uh, well, you were just drawn to that group of people who you know and like? We're all one family, aren't we? But our attitudes and actions betray us. I suspect if we're really honest, we see something of the Corinthians in each of us, don't we? And so the problem that was exposed in Christ Church in Corinth is equally exposed at Christ Church Forward. And the danger is that our meetings do us more harm than good. So what's the solution? Well, the solution is explained here for us, and it's quite simply this. Return to the original Lord's Supper. That's where Paul takes us next in verses 23 to 26. We go back to the original Lord's Supper, as explained to Paul by Jesus himself personally, because Paul was not there. And as we journey back to that original Lord's Supper, we can see just how far we have moved from it when there are divisions in our church. Because having divisions means that we don't share the Lord's Supper. Indeed, just look at how Paul uh, begins in verse 23. He says, I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. He doesn't say the night before Jesus was crucified. The night before he died for our sins. He says the night before he... Sorry, the night he was betrayed. And I think Paul's making the point very clearly that anyone who diverts from the original meaning and intention of the Lord's Supper betrays Christ. Paul is warning his readers in Corinth and us today not to betray Christ by our attitudes and behaviour when we come together as the church and particularly when we come together to remember the Lord's Supper. Our attitude to him, to the supper, and to his people must be in line with that first original meal. So first off, what did Jesus say? Verse 24, Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Uh, Jesus' words were speaking of a profound reality that was going to happen, that the next day his body would be broken upon a cross. Doing it there and then, in the context of the Passover meal, Jesus was saying that he was the lamb that was going to be sacrificed for the salvation of many. Just as that lamb was sacrificed back in in Exodus for the salvation of every firstborn, So Christ would die for many. He was pointing forward to what his death would achieve. And then Jesus went on to say in verse 25, in the same way after supper he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. You see, Jesus is again showing them the significance of his death. His blood shed was the means by which the new covenant, that united relationship between us and God, 
would be created. Just as blood had sealed covenant in the Old Testament, a binding and faithful relationship between Israel and God, so Jesus' blood would seal the relationship between God and one another. And so, Paul goes on and says, look, whenever you drink this bread and, sorry, eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death for you until he comes again. Those words uh, back in verse 24, for you, are so significant. They remind us that he didn't just die for me. He died for us. His death in our place, bearing the weight of our sin, so that we need not face God's wrath ourselves. You see, his body broken, his blood shed, is the only means by which any of us, and all of us, can be saved brought into relationship with him and into the one body of Christ, the church. He died for you and for me. And so any division denies that that has happened. It denies what he has done for us and what he has made us. Let me just read to you some words uh, that uh, Tim Keller quotes in King's Cross. It's from a book written by Don Carson. He says this, What binds Christians together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of that sort. Christians come together because they have been saved by Jesus Christ. They are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. Keller continues, when you take the Lord's Supper, you are doing it with brothers and sisters, with family. This bond is so life-transforming that it creates a basis for unity as strong as if people had been raised together. Our meal together declares our unity a unity Christ has forged, and it points forward to that wonderful banquet that we will enjoy with people of all nations and tribes. A return to the original Lord's Supper is the solution to division. It's a meal that has Christ at its heart in which we remember the body of Christ broken for us. His blood shed for us. It proclaims his death until he returns and we are reminded that one day we will be caught up with him. It's all about Jesus. His death and the one people that he creates through it. And if we make it anything else, we deny who he is, what he has done and who he has made us. So we need to ask ourselves a question. Do our attitudes and our behaviour towards Christ and towards one another, do they bear witness to that truth? Or do they betray us as heretics because we betray him? I suspect we've all got some way to go. And because we do, we need to note finally the response required. Personal 
examination before God's judgment. Verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Those words don't convey what was originally written. The literal translation is this. We are guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. We nailed him there. We sent him to his cross. That means we've all got to take a long, hard look at ourselves before we eat and drink the Lord's Supper. Verse 28, a man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. Because if we don't, if we eat, verse 29, without recognising the body of the Lord, that is the church in this instance, we eat judgment on ourselves. And that was exactly what was happening in Corinth. The Lord's judgment was already upon them in discipline because of their division. Now, it's worthwhile saying at this point that whilst all illness and death is a consequence of our rebellion against God, most sickness and death is not the result of a person's own sin. However, in certain circumstances, as was happening in Corinth, a person's persistent sin is judged by God in this way. And the Corinthians' attitude to each other was persistent and repented of, unrepented of. And God chose to wake them up graciously to bring them to their senses so that they would return and turn to him and may not be condemned. This raises the question for us as individuals and as a church. If we are, if I am having a persistent illness or if there's persistent illness present within our church fellowship, we need to ask, am I or are we guilty of any persistent sin or heresy that is cutting me off and others off from true faith in Christ? I've been ill now for 16 years and this is a question I keep on having to ask myself to test myself to see if there is any sin in me. We need to do it to ourselves. So as we come together, and especially as we come to Holy Communion, can I suggest we consider four things. First, we look back. That's what verses 23 to 25 were all about. Look back to keep Christ's death in view, his body broken as he faced God's wrath for us, his blood shed as he sealed his new covenant with us. And as we look back, we give thanks. We remember in such a way that we are motivated to live our lives individually and corporately for him. We look forward. We keep Christ's return in view, verse 26. We continue to proclaim his death until he returns and we look forward to both his judgment and to that banquet that we will enjoy with him. And as we do so, we are reminded again of the need to repent because of that impending judgment. Third, we look in. Let's take a long, hard look at ourselves. That's what verses 27 to 32 are saying. Look at ourselves to see if there is sin in us so that we may enjoy fellowship with one another and receive the bread and wine 
in a worthy manner. Now, we mustn't uh, misunderstand Paul. He's not saying we cannot meet and receive unless we are totally pure, because none of us can presume upon our own self-righteousness. And we'll pray that prayer in a moment or two. We cannot come trusting in our own righteousness. Neither can we say, I cannot come because I've sinned too badly. If we repent, then this meal is for us. I'm reminded of the words of encouragement given by a Scottish minister to a woman who was hanging back from receiving the bread and wine because she was so conscious of her sins. He said simply to her, Take it, woman. It's for sinners. So we need to look in and do honest business with God. And then fourth and finally, we're to look around, verses 33 to 34. You see, we're not here for our own individual refueling. We're here to come together for each other in Christ. We are the body of Christ, for whom Christ gave his body and his blood. We're all equal in Christ. And yet we are so selective in our friendships and our relationships. We must look around at one another to ensure that we are in love and fellowship with every single one here. If there's anyone here this morning who is bearing a grudge against someone else, if there is someone here who didn't share the peace with someone because they could not, if you're someone who is refusing to forgive someone else, then you should not receive the bread and wine, for you will be drinking judgment upon yourself. Can I urge you instead, when you leave here, to put yourself right with that other person, to do that business you need to do. You see, such thoughts and behaviour are very dangerous and have no place in Christ's family, in this family. And then as we come to receive communion round these rails, we don't do so as individuals, we do so as a family. Let's look up to one another Let's love one another. Let's rejoice and encourage one another. And when we've received, let's sing with one another to encourage one another. So as we move towards communion, can I encourage you to look back, to look forward, to look in and to look around? And can I only, can I say to you only to come and receive if you have done that business with Christ and your neighbour that you need to do? Otherwise, you are eating and drinking judgment on yourself. Let's pray.